Let's pray together. Father, it's so fitting that we sing, Speak, O Lord. Lord, keep speaking through your word until your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Lord, thank you for the privilege it is to have your word in our language, in our native tongue. I thank you for the privilege it is to preach it and teach it to your people. And Lord, I thank you that we get to rejoice in the truth together as an expression of our love for one another and our love for you. God, I pray that you'd grow that love and strengthen our bonds by the power of your Holy Spirit, even as your word is preached. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before I begin, I want to just give a brief uh, overview of where we're planning to go in terms of the preaching schedule coming up. After talking with the elders, we decided that we would do a mini-sermon series on the book of Philippians. So many, we're going to do four sermons on it, a chapter a week. So chapter one uh, today, chapter two, God willing, uh, next week. And then take a little break. Um, on the 24th, I'm going to preach a Sanctity of Human Life a Sunday sermon. And then on the 31st, we get to hear from our brother Daniel Decker preaching on the doctrine of baptism. And then after that, we're uh, going to pick up in Philippians again, chapters three and four. And then God willing, launch into a more extended sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And that should lead us through the winter in spring and leading up to the summer. So that's our plan and God can do what he wants with it. Uh, we're, we're submitting that to him. It seems like that would be pleasing and fitting, um, uh, you know, pastures to graze in as a church. And so that's where we're going to be. But today we're in Philippians chapter one. Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, like a lot of the letters, the epistles in the New Testament, they're written to particular churches in particular places, like the Thessalonians, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, they are written to particular churches in particular places. So this is written to the Philippians who are in Philippi. And um, one simple way to think about the letter of uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians is to uh, think about it as a missionary support letter. Okay, the Apostle Paul is being supported by the Philippian church. They're helping supply some of his needs as he's on the front lines, um, spreading the gospel as a pioneer missionary. So they're supporting him. They've even sent a brother from their own ranks, Epaphroditus, to bring gifts to him to make sure that he has what he needs. And so there is this partnership in giving and receiving between missionary Paul and this church, the sending church um, at Philippi. And uh, so Paul is going to be writing very affectionately to them, um, expressing gratitude for their partnership, gratitude for the gifts, the support, the prayers, the finances, the things that they have done to help continue to spread the gospel uh, with him. Um, and he's going to give them pastoral encouragement, building them up, caring very much about what they're doing right where they're at in Philippi. And so there's this beautiful exchange in this gospel partnership between Paul and and the Philippian believers. So this is a missionary support letter. And in this letter, there's a number of themes, but I want to point out one kind of sub-theme that is more important than most people tend to think. Um, and that theme is the theme of imitation. For example, in chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Paul says, Brothers, 
join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And one of the important things to grasp is that when Paul is teaching something, he's not just wanting the Philippians and God's not just wanting us to understand it intellectually. Like, oh, this is what Paul is saying right here. But Paul is saying what he's saying because he wants it to be embodied in the lives of the Philippian believers. So in chapter one, we're going to see a number of things that Paul values. Like he values the partnership that he has in the gospel with these Philippian believers. He values the spread of the gospel, the advance of the gospel. He values the gospel itself. And as Paul, in one sense, speaks about how he's valuing these things, he's wanting them to share in those values, share in those convictions, that the posture of their hearts would start to look more and more like Paul's and ultimately like Christ's. And so we want to embody these things as we hear them because that's that's what's meant to happen here. So I want to begin in verses 3 through 11, thinking about how we should feel about our partnership in the gospel. Paul's going to tell us how he feels, and we need to learn from that. Now, when I say partnership in the gospel, what I'm talking about is this. I'm talking about the relationships, both with missionaries that we send out, okay, that we send out and support and have an ongoing relationship with for the advancement of the gospel, but also our relationships within the body as local churches. There's a gospel partnership. And I am praying that God will, that God will tie together and knit together our hearts in ways that we don't even uh, fully experience right now. That we would come to value gospel partnership like Paul values it here in this text. But those are the kind of relationships that I'm talking about within the body and even as we send some abroad. And so what is it? If you're going to ask the Apostle Paul, you're going to say, what is it that makes gospel partnerships so sweet? What makes gospel part? I mean, there's all kinds of different types of partnerships, right? I mean, two men can shake hands and go on, on a business deal together and they have a partnership. There's a partnership there. And we could also um, be on the same team in a board game. It's a partnership. Some more, more valuable to some of us than others, probably. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of different things that we can have partnerships in. We could join a committee together. There's a partnership, right? But what is so unique about partnerships in the gospel? Gospel partnerships. If we were to ask the Apostle Paul, he would say a number of things that make these kind of partnerships so sweet. He would say, first of all, when it comes to these partnerships, we have a bond because we have been given the same gift. And that is the gift of grace through Jesus Christ. This is the foundational thing when it comes to our partnership. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 7, It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. In other words, he's speaking to the Philippians saying, we have the same humble roots. Yes, you were ignorant pagans in Philippi, and I was a prideful, blind Pharisee 
in Palestine. But the reality is, is that both of us were on our way to hell and eternal destruction, but God. But God intervened through his son, Jesus Christ. We come to hear of this news that though we were sinners offending a holy God, that God sent forth his son who died in our place for our sins. He rose from the dead so that we could have the hope of eternal life. Paul's saying this grace that we have received through Jesus Christ has flooded not just my life, but your life. And so we start on equal playing field. We both realize that we do not deserve a seat at the table, but here we are. The wonder of grace, this undeserved favor from God. Paul's saying, this is at the basis. This is the, this is the roots of our partnership, these humble roots, undeserving, but we are recipients of this grace and we enjoy it together. He'd also say another thing that makes this partnership so sweet is not only that we have these same origins of grace, but that we have fought in the same battles. Right? Because he says, for you all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is sent out. He's on the front lines. And as he's going through all kinds of things, like we're going to see, like imprisonments, you have a people standing in firm solidarity with Paul, completely identifying with him and his cause that got him imprisoned in the first place. And so there is a camaraderie in this relationship that's like nothing else. Maybe one thing you could compare it to, though, is maybe military men that go out on deployment, right? They enlist at the same time, but then they go out into a battle together. And they experience highs and lows. They experience difficulties, discomforts, defeats but they also experience advances and successes together in their deployment. And especially those who have gone on through multiple deployments, if you talk to a military man, sometimes they don't like to talk about the war, right? But there is usually one thing that's super dear to their hearts, their comrades. Those who have fought the battles, with them. there's a particular bond that they feel. Paul is saying not only have we shared and continue to celebrate this grace together, but we fight on the same team, the same battles, and there's something about being embattled together that has a way of knitting hearts together. But it gets better than that. What adds to that is time. You notice that in verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer for joy, because of your partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now. This has been going on for a while. And there is something about a committed gospel partnership, sharing in grace, fighting the same battles over time that is extremely powerful in the Christian life and deeply enriching. It's like this. You picture that Married couple, they've been married for 60 years, celebrating their wedding anniversary, their old wrinkly hands, holding hands with one another, walking down the board rock. And if you have eyes, I mean, we look at them and just go, that's, that's so beautiful. I mean, these folks, they have weathered so many storms together. They have walked through so much life together. 
Oh, what they have seen. The disappointments, the failures, the difficulties. Picking each other up at different times and making it to this point where they're still loving each other after all these years. And then the other side of the board rock, you see this newlywed couple skipping down the board rock. You know, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But there is a difference. There is something about love ripening over time that the newlywed couple doesn't know much about at this point. There's a glory that comes with time. And Paul's saying, I'm I'm seeing that in this gospel partnership. Time is ripening the sense of camaraderie and shared grace that we already feel. It's just getting sweeter with the year. There's just this commitment for Paul. For Paul, his heart is just overflowing with gratitude for God because only God can ultimately create these kind of partnerships because they're not just formalities. They're relationships that are formed as hearts are fused together. It's a work of God in the community of believers. Paul has grown to love these brothers and sisters at Philippi. Later, he's going to call them my joy and my crown, his beloved. In fact, here, he says something so audacious. You know, when I'm, at, when I'm expressing my love for my kids, I'll say something like, how much does daddy love you? And they'll go, so much, right? Or I'll say, daddy loves you to the moon and back. Some of you probably say that to your kids, and they're like, oh, okay, you know, great, that's a lot. But how often do I be like, you know what? I love you. Like, I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that that's what Paul says? Like, I love you like Jesus loves you. That's profound. That's, that's a work of God in the heart where the very affections of Christ are flowing from one believer to other believers. And it creates this bond, this knitting of love that is really profound and quite supernatural. Do you get a sense here of what God wants for us in our gospel partnerships? within a local church, I would ask you this morning, how connected do you feel to your brothers and sisters? How connected does God want you to be to your brothers and sisters? Some of you here have been superficially connected to the body of Christ for some time. And this text is calling you like to look what you can have. Look what you, look what's meant to be. This is what we're meant to desire. In fact, Paul goes on to say, and it's after he says that how God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ, he says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is an inspiring passage when we consider the apostles' spirit-wrought longings. And I think what God's wanting and from us is this heart cry to come up and go, God, help me to desire and long for gospel partnerships like this. In fact, one way to get at our own hearts, we could do this. We could, and it would be a good exercise right now and in the days to come, to compare your mindset with Paul's. 
compare your mindset toward fellow Christians and towards those who we send out with the Apostle Paul's. Note the similarities and the differences. When you consider the similarities, praise God for ways that you feel that kind of connectedness with the people of God. When you can say there are real gospel partnerships here, my soul knows it well. Like rejoice because that's a work of grace in the heart to desire, to be affectionately desirous of your brothers and sisters like that. It's beautiful. It's a work of God. Note the similarities and give glory to God for it because it is a work of God and he deserves the credit. Amen? But when you note the differences, when you note the differences, let it be an opportunity for each of us to search our own hearts. Recognize what, what's with these detachments? You know, why am I, why am I holding myself at a safe distance from the people of God? Why can't I express affection like the Apostle Paul does here? Note those differences and talk to your Father in heaven about those differences. But note them and take them seriously. Go to him. Confess to him ways that you feel like your heart is shriveled, you know, in terms of love for brothers and sisters. And and this is powerful. Paul actually models it here in these verses. He models prayer. You know, just as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You could also say it this way. Where your prayers focus, there your heart will be also. If you don't feel very connected to your brothers and sisters, I think it's going to change if you start praying individually for other members in the local church. It just does something. You start talking with people, seeing what's going on in their lives. You start praying specifically for them. Your heart starts to get, there's an investment, a spiritual investment, and God has made it so. And I want to so encourage us, brothers and sisters, to be praying for one another. We're not with each other all week, right? And Paul wasn't with the Philippians all the time. So what could he do when his heart, when his heart yearns so much for them? Pray. Pray. And all it did is keep kindling that love in his heart for them and his desire for Christ to be exalted in their lives as we are going to see. And I just want to affirm just want to affirm, brothers and sisters, I see a lot, by God's grace in our church, a lot of these kind of soul bonds happening within the body of Christ. And it is, there's a lot to celebrate here. And I know it weighs on my heart often that there are still some, I dare say many, that are more toward the fringe, you know, of the church. They're members, but they kind of come when they want. And there's not this sense of robust commitment to the people of God, the They don't even allow for the soil to get to where it needs to be, where these relationships can happen. And this is where I just plead on the authority of God's word. Submit yourself to the word of God. Say, God, change my affections and my mindset to be more like this. And so we praise God for the grace that's here. And like the Apostle Paul, we say, may our love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So we get greater insights into what God wants for these gospel partnerships so that we will bear much fruit together for the glory and praise of God. Amen? Amen. So this is an insight into how Paul feels about gospel partnerships and how we should feel about gospel partnerships between one another and also with those that we send out from us 
to advance the gospel. And that's where we go next. How does Paul feel about the advancement of the gospel? Again, this is a, a mindset we're meant to take on here and, and uh, a longing that we're meant to share with the apostle. So he's going to give now a missionary update. How are things going on the field? Paul, Daniel just gave us one of Diodne this morning. You know, how are things on the field? Well, Paul's saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, speaking about his imprisonment, his more recent one, uh, speaking about his imprisonment, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's really served to advance the gospel. All right, so his imprisonment, he's saying, all right, it's not all comfortable. It's not all great. He's probably, it's, we don't know for sure, but he's probably imprisoned in Rome and it's probably more of a, you know, a house in prison, house arrest kind of situation. But it's not convenient. It's not comfortable, right? This might not be the optimal circumstances. So it would feel, right? In terms of sharing the word of God. But he's saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, how so? Well, two things. Paul gives this update and he says, I want you to know that my imprisonment has to actually end up with Christ being magnified so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, if someone gets into prison and talks to another inmate, what's the first thing that that inmate is going to ask? What are you in here for, yes, exact. Some of you are too much experience. No, I'm just, <laughs> I was way too confident. <laughs> just messing. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But what are you in for? And the apostle Paul, I mean, inmate Paul says, I'm really glad that you asked. And then Pastor Paul just preaches his sermon right there, right? And there's this web of, you know, uh, authority that is going to have interactions with Paul. And pretty soon, as he's just avidly sharing the good news about Jesus Christ, why he's in chains, he wants everybody to know why. And when people are looking at his life, realizing he could be free <laughs> if he would just shut up about this Christ. But he's going, he's, he's worth more than anything else. And so by his willingness to keep opening his mouth for Christ, it's showing the worth of Christ. He's more valuable than my comfort. He's more valuable than my ease. He's more valuable than my life. We're going to see that more in a few moments. And so, so how is this imprisonment, um, working out to advance the gospel? Well, one, it's creating a great opportunity to show the worth of Christ. And it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that this imprisonment is about Jesus. And that's what he wants everybody to know. He wants them to know Jesus. And the second way that this is working out to advance the gospel is that it's having an emboldening effect on other believers. Do you notice that? It says, and most of the brothers, verse 14, are having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. For Paul, just putting his neck out on the line for him being willing to risk it, it's in him getting in prison and being willing to suffer. It's having an emboldening effect on the other believers behind him. It's a powerful thought. I think that happens in local churches. The more people that step out and take risks in sharing the gospel, the more it spurs on other people in sharing the gospel. 
and uh, Paul's saying, I'm seeing this emboldening effect on brothers and sisters. And um, Paul gives an extremely helpful perspective in this passage, this part of chapter 1. He helps us to get a certain mindset about less than ideal circumstances, right? You would think prison, not exactly the most ideal circumstance, right? When you're trying to spread the gospel, being locked in one place. So what Paul wants us to see here is that God uses less than ideal circumstances. He makes use of them. Um, Prison is one of them, but he highlights another one. Did you notice that in that next paragraph? You've got ill-motive preachers and good-motive preachers, right? Some preaching Christ out of good motives, some preaching Christ out of bad motives, and the ideal circumstance would be everybody would be preaching Christ out of good motives, right? But Paul is able to say God uses less than ideal circumstances, people, and even motives to further his gospel. And Paul is just rejoicing at its advance. Now, is he rejoicing in the fact that there are some preaching with um, with ill motives? Of course not, right? He's not rejoicing in that. Um, but he is rejoicing that the gospel itself is going forth. Now, before I leave this point, I think it might be helpful um, to uh, say a couple things about motives. First, I just want to say, it's okay for us to desire favorable circumstances, okay? It's okay for us to conceive of what would be favorable circumstances for us to share the gospel in, right? But we need to let God decide what's going to be most optimal for the spread of the gospel. Do you feel that? There's a lot of little things that come up in our lives and be like, hey, this is less than ideal and it makes us usually just want to give up and just feel like God can't work in certain circumstances. But to just see like, yeah, we can have an idea about what's most, you know, ideal, what's most favorable, but let's let God decide what's most favorable, most optimal for the spread of the gospel. I often think of the example. Have you read um, The Hiding Place? Well, Corey Temboom, they were um, put in um, prison camp for hiding Jews, right? And, uh, one of the one of the scenes that's always just really stuck in my mind and been powerfully instructive to me has been, you know, um, they're in really, really horrible circumstances. These guards are terribly and shamefully treating these people. And um, they're watching them like hawks. They can't breathe. Like there's just nothing optimal about what is happening there. Then on top of those conditions, there's a lice outbreak. Okay, there's a lice outbreak. You think like, could it get any worse? Could things get any worse in terms of hindering us from sharing the gospel? But for those of you familiar with the story, look how God works with less than ideal circumstances. That lice outbreak kept the guards out of the sleeping quarters. And they were able to have free reign, having the Bibles that they smuggled, having Bible studies and leading people to Jesus Christ. So, God works in less than ideal circumstances. And when it comes to motives, I want to say this, because I think this will be helpful for many of us. There's kind of a spectrum. We have different personalities, right? Some of us are unbelievably introspective. 
Like we're just constantly mulling things over, what our hearts are doing. And we're, we're constantly analyzing ourselves, our motives, right? We almost can't help it. It's kind of how we're wired, it seems. And when it comes to motives um, in the Christian life, it can be paralyzing. It can be crippling. Because we're so busy analyzing our motives and we feel like, oh, they're never pure enough. And it just stops us from doing anything. Because we don't want to be unfaithful to the Lord. But really, in reality, we're kind of like the one in Jesus' parable that takes his talent and buries it. We're paralyzed. We're not doing anything with it. We're too afraid to mess up, too afraid to fail. And I think some of you that are more like that need to hear a word of freedom to say, like Spurgeon used to say, you know, for every one look to yourself, take ten looks to Christ. Like, yes, it's good to be aware of motives because God does care about the motives of our hearts. But the reality is none of us understands our own hearts perfectly. Right? Our hearts are deep wells. None of us, even the most, you know, sensitive of us, um, understand it perfectly. And so what I want to encourage, if you're one of those who tends to obsess about your own motives, I want to encourage you, be aware of them, but look to Christ, understand what he wants you to do, and go for it. Just go for it boldly. And as his spirit pricks your consciences along, along the way, talk to God about your motives. God has a way of purifying motives as we walk, as good as any other time. Not a few missionaries. You read missionary biographies, they they sent out on the field and like, why are they going? Well, they want to see Christ magnified among the nations. They want to see unreached people groups. They wanted adventure. They want, you know, they want to make, they want to make their lives count. There can be a lot of different motives that go into it. Some of them more or less great. But is the answer be like, I just don't know if they're perfect yet, so let's wait another decade. No, it's go and trust God and walk by his spirit and trust him to convict you through the word and the spirit in community with other missionaries or believers to work on your heart and purify your heart over time. There's so much freedom to go. Just go. Don't be paralyzed from trying. Invest your talents. But there's some on the other end of the spectrum. You're sitting there and you're like, yeah, that's not me. I don't even think about these things, right? Some of us don't even think about our motives at all. And Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Like, we should care about our motives. And for some of us, we just launch into stuff. We don't think about motives at all. There's just little sensitivity there. I'd say God's word would probably have us slow down a little bit and develop some sensitivities about our motives so we're not bulldozing people in our lives and think through why we're doing what we are doing. So I'm going to trust the Spirit of God to sort out in this room what we need uh, to hear as individuals on that point. But don't get paralyzed by motives, but don't throw them off as if they're not important. Let's walk with God wherever we're at, and let's seek to honor Him um, with as pure motives as possible, recognizing on this side of heaven, we will be. A mixed bag. And if your motives are pretty pure today, engage in the battle tomorrow, right? That's part of the Christian life. There's a battle to fight. The last thing I want to highlight here um, is Paul's desire. We've looked at his desire, um, what he, how he values gospel partnerships, 
how he values the advance of the gospel. Now let's just land like at the, at the bottom level. Like how does Paul value the gospel itself? Okay. And this is where we're going to come to one of the famous sayings from the apostle Paul, where Paul has this happy tension in his heart, right? He don't know, he doesn't know how things are going to go exactly. He's in prison. Is he going to get released? And continue to live? Or is he going to die and seal his life and martyrdom? He doesn't know. And in one sense, you could say he doesn't care. Why? He's feeling this tension. Did you notice that when we read through it? He says, for to me, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ. To live. So if I'm released from prison, if I get to continue to live my life in the flesh, in the flesh here just means uh, just continuing to live and move and breathe and live the Christian life. He says, if I get to continue to live and minister, that means fruitful labor for me, right? He says, to live is Christ. I get to magnify Christ in my life if God continues to give me breath. But if I die, I get to go immediately to Christ, to be in his presence, and that is gain. He says, I'm hard-pressed. Between the two, my desire, got to be honest, is to depart and be with Christ. But that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary, he says, on your account, right? And so both of the, but what does this tension, this happy tension in Paul's soul tell us about how he feels about the gospel? About Christ? It says there is nothing more important to him than the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I could go either way, but long as Christ is honored in my body, nothing else really matters. It magnifies the worth of Christ because his entire life, whether life or by death, Christ is glorified. There's a mindset here that it reveals the worth of the gospel. And Paul, and this is one of the moving parts to me in chapter one, is that Paul shifts now. And if he was there in person, he's looking them right in the eyes. He's just got done saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But notice, I told you that one of the things underneath the sub-theme is imitation, right? So it's not enough for Paul just to say, for, to, for me to live is Christ to die is gain. Now he turns to them and says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, I'm desires that your life would magnify the worth of Christ, just as I'm desiring my life to magnify the worth of Christ. This really is the heart desire that each one of us should have for our own lives. We want to live in a way that says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important thing in our life, that Christ himself is the most important thing in our lives. So what does the way that we are living our lives say about the worth of the gospel. That is something we have to wrestle deeply with in our hearts. What does how we are living our lives say about the worth of the gospel? Paul's saying, I want you to live in a way that shows everybody around you that there is nothing more precious to you than Jesus Christ. And he gives three things in closing to help them get some practical 
bearings in terms of what it would look like to live a gospel-worthy life, a life that magnifies Christ among those in our spheres of influence. He says you can magnify the gospel by standing in unity, by engaging courageously, and by suffering willingly. Let me unpack those as we close. Paul's saying you will magnify Christ by standing in unity. Look with me at, starting in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul's saying one of the ways you're going to magnify Christ is by standing in unity as a body of believers. This goes back to the point. It's like, is there a heart knittedness? Do you feel connected to the body? Got to take steps to get there. We got to press in in prayer, in relationships. This is what we want to grow into here. In our membership covenant at FBC, we try to distill down what does it look like to live in unity, and we make a commitment to one another to be to. uh, Do you commit to main uh, to maintain unity? Pursue peace and secure reconciliation. So in other words, there are things in life that hinder our unity, right? There are attitudes, there are actions, there's evil suspicions that hinder unity in the body of Christ. And here he's saying, stand firm in our faith of the gospel. Jesus Christ died to make us unified. He prayed in the high priestly prayer, Father, make them one as we are one. He cared, He died to purchase our unity and we need to be eager to maintain that unity that he has produced in us as the people of God. And what happens when there's something that disrupts the unity? When there's conflict? We need to be eager to maintain it. We got to take action. And whether it's us offending someone else or someone else offending us, we have to be the initiator. That's what the Word of God teaches us. And I was really moved by this not that long ago. That uh, one of the brothers, our brother Herb, to be exact, uh, came up to me um, and said, Brother, i got to talk to you about something. And so we met in my office, and, and he just shared with me. It's just like, something you said hurt me. And he took the time to explain. He just came with such a gracious manner, just a loving brother. And he just came and he just pointed it out. And I was aware of the situation, but not aware of the hurt and how it landed. And it forced me to stop and look at my motives in that situation, take the context in. And the Lord cut me to the heart when we were meeting together. And I was so, I felt overwhelmed by the love of Christ in that moment because my brother Herb obeyed the scriptures to eagerly maintain unity and to maintain those bonds of peace that Christ purchased for us. And it was such a sweet moment because both of us got greater insights into our own hearts, into Christ and his forgiveness. And uh, it I would testify that it's deepened our love for each other as brothers. 
And I would just commend to you Herb's example. I think that that is what we need to do and not just brush things under the rug. If it's causing us to distance ourselves from other brothers and sisters, I mean, when we partake of communion, part of what we are proclaiming in that moment is the unity that Christ purchased for us. And it's a lie to ignore broken relationships and then partake of the bread and the cup. So stand firm. Stand firm in the gospel by walking in unity with one another, the very unity that the gospel purchased for us. Amen? He also said to, we, we magnify the worth of the gospel, not just by our unity with one another, but also by engaging courageously. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. It's going to be a clear sign to them of their destruction and your salvation and that from God. In other words, when Christians are willing to engage and get into the fray, it has a way of making eternal differences distinguishable. And here we're being told we need to be courageous. Paul says um, at the end there, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. They saw with their own eyes what Paul went through to see people in their own church converted. How he courageously and boldly was willing to share the gospel. Now, we can be very sympathetic with one another, can't we? It's hard to share the gospel with other people, isn't it? It's difficult. It's difficult. There's a lot of different things, a lot of different dynamics that go into it, fears that creep up in the heart. We can be very sympathetic with us. The most courageous evangelist in our group here has times of fear, right? Where you want to shrink back, you cower, you don't take the opportunities that you can. But I think this text doesn't allow us to stay there just kind of struggling. Yes, it's hard for all of us, and so we don't have to do it. This text is saying we are to be engaged courageously. So this is a call to step out of our comfort zones and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. It's not right. It's not right for brothers and sisters around the world and brothers and sisters that are sent out going to hard places to to be sharing the gospel in those ways, in those contexts and enduring so much and for us to not feel the same obligation here. We need to step out of our comfort zones. We need to engage courageously. And it's something about putting ourselves out there that helps people see the worth of Christ. Think about it. If you're not willing to talk about Jesus Christ, it doesn't take much for them to calculate in their mind how meaningful he is to you. True or false? It's true, right? And that is meant to wake us up and go, no, I want people to see how worthy Christ is with my life. And one way I'm going to do that is by stepping out of my comfort zone and engaging courageously because people have to know. And they're going to know where they're headed and we're headed, where we're headed. And we just want to make it really clear that we're not going to go with them. And it'd be a lot better if they went with us to our eternal destination. Now, finally, last one. We magnify the worth of the gospel by suffering willingly. Notice how he says it here. Verse 24. Or sorry, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you not only believe in him, 
but also suffer for his sake. What has he granted us as Christians? It's not just been granted that we believe in the Lord Jesus, but also that we suffer for the Lord Jesus. We want to get that into our blood seems. One of my burdens is, is that, you know, I don't want to make anybody feel bad for living in America. I don't want to make you feel bad for living in the Midwest. I don't want to make you feel bad for living in Piers, Minnesota. I love Piers, Minnesota. And this is a glorious place to live, and I think God's happy with it. I think he's pleased with it. I think it's okay to own a house and have cars and have a nice dinner on the table. Right? I There's so many good gifts. We're meant to enjoy these things to the glory of God. I don't want to make anybody feel bad for those things, but what we do need to see, we need to ask ourselves, is there a willingness to suffer? Because one of the things that concerns me is that because of the relative ease that we experience, we become very flabby as Christians, very soft. And my prayer is that through God's word, through the working of a spirit, and through a robust community of believers getting serious about the Christian life together, that even though we live in the context we do, and we don't have to feel bad about it at all, we are not going to be flabby Christians. And we are not going to be soft Christians. My prayer is that every member of EBC will have a durability to them, a strength, a toughness that comes only from these kind of truths getting deep into our bloodstream as a community of believers. The Spirit has to produce that in us. So we step back. We need to see this. The more that we value the gospel, the more that we're going to long for the gospel to be advanced. And the more that we value the gospel, the more we're going to prize gospel partnerships that help advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. I trust all of us have been pricked in one way or another. And I want us to think about how nothing is more precious than the gospel of Jesus Christ and few things are more enriching than the Christian in the Christian life than gospel-centered partnerships. I think about this often. I think about laying you church members in the grave at your funeral. I just think, like, more and more as we grow together, the thought of losing anyone is intense. We almost lost our sister Lois this year. And it was powerful to watch the kind of soul ties that were there among the saints and the earnest biblical prayers that were being prayed on her behalf. That sounded a lot like Philippians chapter 1, actually. It's beautiful. But my hope is that every single one of us would engage in body life. And if you're visiting today, that you would be plugged into a gospel preaching local church where you're at. And that you'd magnify the worth of the gospel in the community of believers that you're at. And that you would come to see the value of these gospel partnerships in your life. You know, there's a lot of things that are going to be less than ideal in this life and in this mission. But it's sweet to think about eternity, isn't it? There, we'll have optimal (laughs) circumstances. Everything will be truly ideal. That's not what it is right now. But we get to look forward to that day. For now, we work in less than ideal circumstances 
confident that God loves to work in those circumstances to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to a day. We look forward to a day when we will get to enjoy the fruit of these gospel partnerships. We'll be able to enjoy the fruit of watching what God did through Diodne and Dominique and the partnership that we formed with them and the saints from unreached peoples in Cameroon and beyond that are going to be around the throne because of gospel partnerships that made it happen. Oh, that God would grow our bonds together as a body. We've heard so much here. What I want us to do now is turn to a time of congregational prayer to respond. I think this is so fitting for us to respond to this word together. Um, we haven't done it in a little while now, so I'll just remind us, encourage us to pray out, try to pray loud enough where others can hear and be edified. I would even encourage you when someone's done praying to utter your amen in agreement with them. Um, there's a lot of things, similarities and differences when we look at the Apostle Paul and how he sees these gospel partnerships. So we are praying, God, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. So please lead out and I'll close us.